The History of College Football is a podcast dedicated to preserving the college football gridiron memories from years gone by. Please feel free to visit our website at historyofcollegefootball.com. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to History of College Football. I am Jay Abramson, and I will take you down a gridiron memory lane. The national champions, the teams, the rivalries, the conferences, the Heisman winners, the rankings. Today, we are lucky to have a very special guest, Seth Fisher, editor of MGO Blog, publishes Hail to the Victors magazine, co-host of the MGO podcast and MGO Blog Roundtable on WTKA Ann Arbor, and hosts a history podcast called The Teams. You can follow him on Twitter at, and I hope I kept the pronunciation right, at Misopogan. I probably messed oh, that. No, no, don't, don't get it right at all. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. No one, no one can get this right. I, I can't get it right I, anyway. I, you can brief me on this one. <laughs> but it's at M-I-S-O-P-O-G-O-N. That's at M-I-S-O-P-O-G-O-N. I want to thank you for joining my podcast. How are you today, Seth Fisher? Jay, it's it's I'm tickled. I love this. I love getting on and talking college football history. I love the way we met. It started as like an internet argument. <laughs> like we start fighting Absolutely. online about Oregon history and like then we get <laughs> we get into DMs and start going back and forth and like I love it. I could do this all day. You're one of us, Jay. Oh, and I love your passion. I really do. You're the editor of MGO Blog. Hail to the Victors. Mm-hmm. This is the nation's largest independent sports blog with over 1 million readers. Tell us about MGO Blog. Uh, so Brian started MGO Blog in 2005, uh, may have been late, 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 late 2004. I joined him in 2009, um, and I took it full-time myself in 2012. He was full-time by 2008. And uh, only in the last few years, Brian's kind of had to step back for personal reasons and just too much, and I kind of moved into the into the head chair. Uh, but he and I have been kind of doing it together for a very long time. Uh, he's the one I got to give credit to for building it. He's just an amazing writer, and I have to credit Michigan fans because Michigan fans are the war dads. They are just they they are nerds. They are wealthy, and they are numerous, so we can talk about whatever we want to. We cover football, basketball, hockey, other sports. We make all of our money on advertising, so all of our stuff is free. Um, And it's just supported by a massive readership who respects how much work we're going to put into it. And then that's all we have to do is put in a lot of work, and that's kind of how we base this all out. So Brian started this thing. I came aboard and um, we built this great empire that is amazingly popular, even though, you know, we don't do anything that makes that you're supposed to do to make things popular, make you found on the internet or anything. Oh, that's phenomenal. Now, now I understand that you publish an annual preview and feature magazine called Hail to the Victors. Please tell us about it. Uh, it's 128 pages, working on the new one now. We are very late on it right now. But the first half is previewing the team and the opponents. And then the second half uh, is like all features. So we do like X's and O's stuff. Uh, we've had all sorts of writers, national and Michigan, writing it. Lot, you know, anyone who's written a book about Michigan usually gets an article in there eventually. Uh, and then like my favorite section in the back is always about history. So um, – you know, we, we watch film is our main thing is our we break down film of our team and then of the opponents. So it's that's what it is. It's like if you saw all the film, what does that team look like? And then the second half is, you know, if you 
need to write about college football is if you have like a you know a burning passion to write about college football here's an outlet to do something so like ian boyd writes for us every year john u bacon writes for us all the time like those that's what the that's what this thing is no advertising in it completely supported by the readership and i promise i promise we're working on it all my mco blog listeners because i know that they they expect it around july 4th and it's just not even finished being written yet so we're sorry it's coming it's coming i promise (laughs) Sounds phenomenal. I urge all of my, my listeners to go ahead and, and check it out when it comes out. I want you to tell us about your site, your podcast. Uh, a podcast, well, it's been going on for years. We, we are a quote podcast network because we have lots of different ones. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's one of the earliest sports podcasts out there. So it, 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 we were lucky to get in. This is true for everything. We were, we we're lucky to be from the time that we are because, uh, you know, people weren't, uh, really, people are finding where they're going to go in the mid 2000s. And mm. because we got in so early, then we get to have this great platform. And I hope a lot of people who are starting out podcasts now, I wish that they didn't have to go through so many hoops that they have to go through because it was so much easier back then to kind of get your foot in the door. Um, but yeah, I mean, we do Friday night podcasts before games. We have a podcast every Sunday. And then the teams is the thing is like my own little passion project. Uh, where I grab other history guys and we talk about a single Michigan team uh, per every episode. We've done 24 episodes so far. Please tell the viewers where they can find your podcast. Uh, just look up MGO Podcast. Okay, MGO Podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll, it's, it's on all the whatever the thingies that you use for your podcasting. I don't want to tell you wh- where to listen to your podcast. So if you look up MGO Podcast, you'll find it. Look up the teams, MGO Blog. Any of those things will, uh, will find those. Fantastic. So, so let's talk a little bit of Michigan Wolverine football history, starting with Fritz Chrysler, coach from 1938 to 1947. 71 wins, 16 losses, three ties, won 80.6% of his games. For a little bit of background, in 1938, Fritz Chrysler left Princeton to become the head coach at Michigan, whereupon he instituted that iconic wing helmet to the Wolverines. And in his 10 seasons, Coach Chrysler's version of the Wolverines were ranked in the final AP poll every year, the last eight seasons, in the top 10 of the final AP poll every year. And if that's not enough, his 1947 team won the national championship. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about this man, his career, his legacy. And to start with, who was, who was Fritz Chrysler? So Chrysler, um, Chrysler as, in, as in Chrysler Arena. Yeah, I, we, we love to confuse people in Michigan because we spell the, the, the name Chrysler differently in two different ways and they're pronounced the same way. So <laughs> if you're driving a Chrysler or you're talking about the man Chrysler, it's the same pronunciation. Um, but I, that, that brings up a point, I, and I'm glad you kind of mispronounced it because it shows this guy was – if you lived in the, his time, and his time is not just when he was coaching because he was an administrator. He was Michigan's athletic director all the way up until 1967. So this guy was a titan in college football at his time, and this was a very transformational time in college football. We go from pre-war to – when everyone's on television, right? This was a massive transition. We go from nobody passes to everybody passes. We go from, you know, everyone's playing both ways to everyone. And he did this. He was the guy who, like, was in the middle of this. And everyone in that time would have known the name Fritz Chrysler. And yet today we don't really talk about this guy that much. Now, he would have preferred it that way. He kind of, he was, he had this modesty about him. Uh, But he is a, fascinating character not i would say a hero Uh, there are definitely and you're going to find this i'm sure true of every single historical figure uh he had warts he had blind spots he had mistakes that he made huge mistakes including you know did not see certain things coming that other schools did and michigan was kind of a mediocre team for two decades because of it so i mean chrysler uh a name that anyone t- back then would have known had more to do with changes in college football in that time than people realize. And like you said, like most people don't even pronounce his name. But I think most people, they look at Michigan history and most people are probably not Michigan fans or listening to you. Uh, but most kind of people think like, okay, Michigan, they were great in the dark ages. Yo's point a minute, whatever, 1900, 1901. They're awesome. Right. And then like, 
Bo Schembechler in 1969, and then like all the Bo Schembechler guys after him. And there's a period from Yost and Yost guys, right? Yost coaches who who played for Yost and kind of were under him as athletic director. And then there's another period of Bo Schembechler to you know Jim Harbaugh today, and you could throw throw a direct line to all those coaches. In between is Chrysler. And that era is Chrysler. It's a very different era than Yost. It's a very different era than Bo. And it's a very important era for Michigan. It's a very important era for college football. And I'm ecstatic to be on here talking about him, because, because especially because I feel like we're entering another transitional period in college football. Another time when really the fundamental things about college football and how the fans relate to it, how the athletes are compensated, how they, they where they feel they are in, in, in place, right? This, the same kind of things were happening when Chrysler came to power, as, as it were, right? And I think it's fascinating to talk about him now because we're going through another transitional period, and hopefully, you know, we can not make some of the mistakes he made. Hopefully we can see how things transition when they do and also see how one man just choosing to do something different sometimes actually creates the change. What a great response. A great way to frame his time period where he came from with today. Beautifully well done. Talk to us about his background before he arrived at Michigan. What brought him to Michigan? So no one at Michigan, no blue-blooded Yostman, as they would have said back then, <laughs> would have considered Chrysler a Michigan man. He was the enemy. He, uh, he was a guy who uh, played for and then coached under Amos Alonzo Stagg. Now, if you know your college football history, you know Stagg, right? He was the man at Chicago. If you know a little bit more about college football history, you know that Chicago eventually turned on him. They went full academic. And this guy kept coaching for like another 30 years. So he's, he's the coach in the 1800s. And then he's still the coach uh, out in the Pacific. And he's, his, some of his games are televised. So, I mean, this guy just, he's, he's a, another titan. And Chrysler was one of his guys, one of his main guys. If you wanted to see, like, you know, Where's, where's Stagg's coaching tree out there? I would say Chrysler's the first pe- person that someone would point to and be like, yeah, that's a Stagg guy. And he, and he would have done so as well. So Stagg, he, he coached under Stagg for a while. He played under him uh, in, until like World War I and then uh, coached underneath him until like 1930. And that's when Stagg actually got him the job uh, at Minnesota. So uh, Chrysler took... The uh, they call it the old Yale system, even though Yale hadn't been running it for twenty years. But if you're running, if you're coaching for Stag, you're still using the quote Yale system. So he took the Yale system quote uh, to Minnesota. Um, this was like the inside zone team of uh, of the era, right? Everyone used the, the 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 Yale system, and the Yale system was big linemen, right? Everyone played both ways. So like, if I say linemen, they're defensive end, yeah. So. Big linemen, and then really fast guys on the outside. They called them ends back then. But anyone who's seen a hybrid space player today, like those hybrid nickels today who are like half linebacker, half safety, that's exactly what those guys looked like back then. That's what an end quote was in this system. So that's what they were. They were very, very thick up front and very fast outside. So they would just pound away at you on the inside until finally you're like, I'm going outside. I can't take it anymore. And then, boom. <laughs> you know, on, on defense, they would knock you down a couple yards. Or on offense, um, you get so used to defending the inside, you get so sick of them pounding away at you and then punting that eventually you just start committing more guys inside or someone's not paying attention. And they had all these great plays to get the ball to the edge. He was, and this was Pricer's uh, tinkering early. Now, he later on in his career, he becomes really one of the great innovators in the game. But he was not at this point. But he starts getting this idea of getting the ball spread out horizontally. And that was one of the first main things he would do. Passing back then it was difficult. You had to get it out of the pocket before you were allowed to pass. So you hit all these plays where you get out of the pocket and then throw it across the other side to your end, and then he would miss, make some guys miss. Like the first screen plays are, are, are all Frisk Chryslers. Uh, so that was his system. It works at Minnesota very well. In two years, he gets quote, a main job, right? A big time job. That's Princeton. Princeton back then is one of the bigger schools. Princeton has like a humongous alumni base. I want to go on an interesting side story right here. And if you need to cut for time, I'm sure this is going to get cut. <laughs> no, no, F. Scott, go on, go on. 
F. Scott Fitzgerald, the guy who wrote Great Gatsby, was a huge, huge Princeton fan. I mean, ridiculous. People need to talk about this when they talk about Great Gatsby. They'd be like, okay, guy wrote that. Princeton fan, if he if, if if he was alive today, he would be the guy that every Princeton fan knows because he's on the message board every single day typing a gazillion words. This guy, he used to actually call Chrysler the night before games and give him, like, here's what I think we should do. Here's what I think that the no, – No, kidding. I'm not kidding. I, it was, like, absurd. But he would really do this. <laughs> <laughs> and then he took, and he would take his call back then. I mean, they didn't have, the coaches didn't really have the protection from the fans that they do today. And like they didn't, when phone numbers were new, they would just publish phone numbers, and there you are. So yeah, they would, that's, Chrysler would be talking to F. Scott Fitzgerald in four games, <laughs> and, and being told how how you're going to beat this opponent and where where they're weak and where they're not. It's just like a, a, a ridiculous super fan. So that I mean that maybe gives you an idea of how much bigger Princeton was back then than it is today. Princeton was a big school. Part of the problem that he, Chrysler had at Princeton is Princeton was a big old school with big powerful alumni and he was an outsider he was a midwest guy he was stags guy right and he ran a system that they didn't really trust um and anytime he changed something there'd be 30 people going oh my god mr president what's going on what's this outsider doing how could he change things we're princeton we you know and he wanted to eventually become an athletic director he was by now by the, the 30s acknowledged one of the great uh, coaches in college football. Michigan actually faced him, uh, you know, they faced him a few t- times at Minnesota, obviously, but they faced him in Princeton in 1932. It was his first Princeton team. He had just inherited a team that was not very good at all. And Michigan won a national championship in 32. They were the, literally the best team in the country. And Michigan's only problem that year was Princeton. They, they gave up seven points to Princeton. They gave up six more points all year. That, that was... <laughs> we know scores a little changed now, but like that was that was a big deal. That was a close game that Michigan kind of won by the skin of their teeth. And after that, they always kind of kept him in their mind. So on his end, he needed some place that was really going to respect him, that was going to make themselves Fritz Chrysler's program. And Michigan all of a sudden went from thinking that they're one of these programs that doesn't need any help to a program that needed a man like Fritz Chrysler more than anything in the world. So Michigan, they're coming out of many years of Yost now, right? Yost had been the, the head coach, and then he had three guys who tried to follow him. The first two didn't take, and then the, second, the third one finally stood up to him a little bit and said, no, we're doing things my way. That's Harry Kipke. Harry Kipke was the first guy that, who played under Yost who actually told Yost, listen, I'm the coach. You go be the athletic director, okay? Uh, and they had a rocky relationship, and things didn't always work great. Kipke, ha- Kipke wanted to uh, integrate the team. Kipke invited Willis Ward and recruited Willis Ward to come play on the, the team in the 1930s. Yost, I, I don't think this is going to surprise anybody, was racist. Uh, it was not like an in-your-face racism, but he certainly um, kind of was part of this Nashville little tradition that came from his wife and from his from West Virginia background. He... Had, there's, it's very easy to find things that to, to demonstrate exactly how he felt. And this all came to a head in 1934. Uh, Willis Ward, Michigan was playing Georgia Tech, and Georgia Tech refused to play Michigan if Willis Ward played. So Yost was going to sit Willis Ward. This is what some teams did back then. This is what Ohio State would do anytime they played Navy. Uh, you, that was kind of a thing that Southern teams expected Northern teams to do. Well, things had changed at Michigan, and this, it was not like that was just the norm to Michigan fans, especially the students. This was a humongous – it would be like today like telling people you're going to bench the gay player. That's kind of how the reaction mm-hmm. – if you just imagine how the world – how people would react to that today. That was the reaction that Yost got from Michigan alumni, Michigan students, and he stood firm. He did not let him – he did not let uh, this fantastic player of his play – and Kipke kind of had to go along with it and support Yost's decision. Uh, it was a huge interruption on campus, and it was a bigger interruption on the team. So fast forward, uh, you know, 1934, those guys, they, they kind of lost the team. It was a terrible Michigan team. Michigan starts losing like crazy, and now Kipke's 
under the hot seat because Michigan, they won a national championship in 32 and 33, and now all of a sudden you're terrible. And they continue being terrible, and they're getting their butts whipped by Minnesota every year. Minnesota's the big you know, rival at the time. Um, sorry, Ohio State. I know Ohio State, Michigan was always their biggest rival, but we, we've gone through a few in the, in the history. Um, he's getting his butt whipped by Minnesota, and that's like the last straw. And that, and but and they're already like talking like how do we get rid of Kipke? Kipke figures, okay, my only way to save myself is to cheat like crazy. Now cheating was nothing new to Michigan. Cheating was nothing new to anybody in college football. We have like in 1893, we have a guy who actually admitted because he was going to get disbarred if he didn't. He admitted that he paid players in 1893. That's oh. how long it had been going on. So. Uh, anyone who's surprised by this, I don't know if you've watched college football in the last hundred years, but it's old. And Michigan, at this point, Kipke says, all right, I got to go full bore. I've got to get a better team. And this is what other teams are doing. In the Big Ten, it was illegal at this point to offer scholarships. Uh, Kipke says, okay, fine. I'm going to work something out with the Chicago Alumni Association. They're gonna. They're allowed to raise funds for scholarships, and they'll get the money from the slush fund, and, we'll, and and it worked great. Problem is, he got caught. Somebody didn't pay up at the same right time, and now he's losing, and he's a cheater. <laughs> so, and at the same time, Yost now is this very old man. He's getting very close to retirement. He's going to retire at the end of 1940, uh, 1941 season. So. Yost is getting close to his retirement. He's already called the old man on campus, and people already ignore him. The, the world has moved on from Yost, and Michigan is the Mich Michigan administrators, who never really liked Yost in the first place, are like, we need to you know, go the exact opposite direction. We need to clean up this stuff from Kipke. We need to you know, disassociate from all of Kipke's friends. We need to show people that we're not Yost anymore. Michigan needs a new name. Chrysler is not only like one of the best coaches in college football, he's like the cleanest guy in college football. So you have those two things combined, you know, they, he's stags guy, Michigan fans are ready to move on anyway. It's fine. Right. Not everyone loves this idea from Michigan standpoint. They hire him. He gets on the train. He meets a couple of Michigan students on the train, uh, a couple girls. And he asks them, what do you think of this new Michigan coach? They don't know what he looks like, right? <laughs> and they go, oh, my God, what a terrible hire. What are you – how are they thinking? <laughs> like, Yost has literally the biggest coaching tree in the history of college football. They, every single coach – like, I think at one point maybe a third of college football coaches actually played for or coached for Yost. So, I mean, this – how do you not get someone from that tree? How do you not like, – <laughs> we could have had anybody. And we got Fritz Chrysler? Fritz Chrysler? Out of Princeton? What are we doing? So he, he tells them who he is, and they go, oh, and he's like, I'm sorry for my little ruse. Why don't you take me to, like, the college bar, the one with all the students go to? <laughs> they say, okay. So Fritz Chrysler, who is very fuddy-duddy, he's, you know, almost 40 at this point, He's which is considered an old man at that point, right? It would be like someone who's 60 today, I think, is our how we would see that. Um, and a very dad figure. He, uh, he gets off the train. And goes with these girls to uh, the Pretzel Bell, which has been reconstituted today. Back then, it was like the the bar where if you turn 21, you stand on the table and drink pitchers, right? And this stuff is going on, and there Fritz Kreiser walks in and introduces himself. And that's Fritz Kreiser, very weirdly, considering how the rest of his career would go. That's the way it begins at Michigan. So that is the answer. That's how Fritz Kreiser ends up at Michigan. <laughs> no, and they prom and obviously they pro I should have mentioned this. They promised him the athletic directorship. So the idea is he's going to come in. He is going to be the man. And as soon as Yost is gone, as soon as that old man, as soon as he's retired, as soon as he's dried out, you're in. So he was the um, athletic director in waiting for exactly. And so this is so he comes in in 1938. And yeah, talk to me about his time in Michigan. Talk to me a little bit about yeah, so his time in Michigan. Yeah. So he comes in in 1938, and the first problem he has is that Kipke's recruiting plan actually had worked. And they had the number one recruit in the country. They had not only the number one recruit in the country, they had the biggest recruit in maybe five or six years. Uh, in the, I mean, one of the biggest recruits of all time. The number one player, he's a guy out of Indiana named Tom Harmon. Can't miss kid. 
And Tom Harbin's been promised a lot of money to come and play for Michigan. Hmm. And now we've got the squeaky clean coach coming. <laughs> Oops. Oh, man. <laughs> so what are we going to do? And Tom is, like, talking to the Michigan Alumni Association, the Chicago club, is a, who were actually running these things for him because he was from Indiana. Um, and he's like, what are we going to do? How is this going to work? And I, am I covered? Because, remember, Michigan won't pay your tuition. Michigan won't pay your room and board. Michigan is in the Big Ten where they have these rules that, like, you're supposed to just be here as a student. And, you know, there's no NIL back then. There's no way to, like, make it up. And he's like – and he's getting offers. Tulane actually sends him an offer saying, hey, we'll pay your scholarship. We'll, we'll give you a f- like $3,000, uh, $1,000 a year to come and play for us. And he's like, well, I'm thinking about going down and playing for Tulane, guys. And the Chicago Alumni Club was like, no, 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 no. We'll figure this out. Don't worry. It'll be good. We'll get you a job. They get him a job at the same pre- same place, the Pretzel Bell, where you, he could check huh. in. So, yeah, officially Tom Harmon, according to the record books, according to the tax records, Tom Harmon was working at the Pretzel Ball the whole time he was at Michigan. Funny enough, no student ever remembers seeing him behind the counter. Like, they've seen him at the Pretzel <laughs> Bell, but no one ever remembers seeing him working. So, <laughs> so they got that one figured out. Um, and so, you know, he's, he's got to compromise a little bit, Chrysler does, but he's trying to build a team, and he's building the team around Tom Harmon. And Harmon is – Harmon helps him – become immediately successful because he's just a transcendental player, uh, a Michael Vick or some like someone who's like the, so that, as long as that guy is on the team, that team is going to be pretty good. Uh, and so that takes him through 1940. And now he's, you know, he's built it up and he's getting some guys to come. Uh, he's changed the helmet. That's actually gone over really well. Uh, do you want to, I, I, have you talked about the helmet before on your podcast? Does anyone know where the Michigan helmet comes from? I would like you to talk about it. Yeah. I, that, we're not on video, so we, we have a joke on the MGO podcast. This is a very visual podcast. So any, only Jay gets to see it right now, but I'm holding up a copy of a, of a 1940 Michigan helmet. Uh, but what it was is just the Spalding helmet of the time. Uh, if you can imagine Michigan's helmet, right, with the wings and the stripes, uh, they were leather helmets with pieces, and the, like the pieces were stitched together. And then you'd have uh, like a an extra piece of leather on top of each one of these stitches. So those are the three stripes. And then they have an extra little pad on not a little pad, big pad on the forehead. And then they would cover that as well. And so those coverings, if you color the coverings one color and the rest of the helmet another color, that is how you get the winged helmet. And Michigan was certainly not the only school to have the winged helmet. Obviously, Princeton, he did it at Princeton first. But what Chrysler did, he wasn't the only coach who did it. But at Princeton, he decided to make those different colors, uh, not just for his receivers. That's kind of a canard. Uh, but he made them different colors so that uh, because – remember how I talked about his system, right? I how did. he bangs it inside, and then he throws it to somebody way outside. Well, if you're running that play, if you're thinking about like a smoke screen, right? It's exactly what that play is. Um, you're one side of the field, your receiver's on the other side of the field. How do you know the difference if everyone's wearing the same clothes and the same helmet? Who's on what team? You can't recognize his face from over there. And this is a problem in college football because they don't spread things out very much. So that was the problem he was actually responding to is that no one had run spread before. No one had – Yost was the biggest spread guy in the country, and Yost was more of kind of a pitch-it-outside kind of guy. Still – you're seeing the face of the guy that you're giving the ball to. Right, so right. that it wasn't actually going downfield. It was actually side to side field where he wanted to see his player just because the nature of his, uh, of his offense. Um, and so that worked very well for him at Princeton. And obviously he brought it to Michigan and, you know, they had the blue helmets. So he colored the, the tops of them yellow, you know, the pieces, the coverings, right. The coverings of the, uh, of where the seams were, um, and that's where the helmet comes from. So thank you, Chrysler. It got popular really quickly because um, this is the very early period of, uh, of people going in and watching football on reels. So you could see it standing out. You could see the contrast of colors, even in black and white. And then mm. Michigan was putting out color promotional materials to show you what it looked like. So people would see it, would go into their movie theaters uh, in the 1930s and 1940, early 1940s. This was movies had taken off at this point, right? It was a big deal. You dressed up and went to the movie theater. It was a big deal. And when you went to the movie theater, you might see a reel of Michigan playing somebody. Well, if you saw anybody else playing anybody else, they all looked like each other. 
if you saw Michigan play, you could recognize Michigan. And if you saw Tom Harmon, you would recognize Tom Harmon because it looked like he was moving in, in like real time and everyone else is in slow motion. So that really kind of made the Michigan helmet into the thing that it became. Was it well received in Ann Arbor when he first instituted it? What, 1938 was that that first season? Yeah, people, I mean, people, the the, the uniforms changed more often back then. Uh, they And... Keep in mind, no one was watching on TV. So the, the old fuddy-duddies right. didn't exactly get to see. So a lot of times people would see Michigan maybe only a few times in their life. Um, if, if old <laughs> alumni who went to a lot of games had a problem with tradition changing, they kept it to maybe wherever they spoke to each other, and that didn't make it into. Uh, but I've read all the Michigan dailies from that time, and the students liked it. Um, right. they, they thought it stood out. They, they thought it was, quote, snappy. The idea of like having your, you know, these these differentiating differentiating colors, like it was cool. I mean, Michigan, it's weird to look at the Michigan helmet and be like, oh, that's like new and hip. But that was kind of the Oregon thing back then, right? Like yeah, they yeah, were. Yeah. That's, they, that's they where my mind immediately when you were saying this. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly what it was because they were highlighting the technology of the helmet at the same time that they're highlighting themselves, right? So it was like a, you know, look at us wearing this newfangled kind of thing, and. At the same time, I think people were more concerned that they all knew that Kipke was a cheater and he was getting all these great recruits. And it's people didn't follow recruiting the way they do now, obviously. But you're selling people short if you think that they didn't follow this thing, especially super fans, right? So they would have newspapers. They would have rankings of high schoolers, and they would list where they're going and what, what school they're choosing to attend. And, and people cared, and people knew that, that was part of what Michigan did is they would get people from all over the Midwest, whereas, you know, Ohio State, you have to get guys from Ohio, right? Like, that was part of what made Michigan, Michigan. So I think people were more nervous about, you know, are we going to be a clean-cut team in this era when everyone's paying their players? And there was a big report that came out, the Carnegie Report. And I don't know if you've spoken about this on your podcast before, but... No, not the Carnegie did. Report. Yeah, but you know what it is. Like they they went and investigated all the schools, and they they spoke to all these former players and everything. And like this is a national report, of where they discovered there was just rampant cheating all through college football, and everyone had like they came out and said it, and then the response from the nation was, eh, <laughs> so <laughs> cared, <laughs> so. I mean, that's that's the context of this. And then, like, oh, no, are we going to be a clean, squeaky clean team? That, if you like, you read the Michigan Daily and see what the students are worried about, or if you see letters from alumni to the school, that's the kind of, even if they're not saying it straight out, that's the tone that it was. Like, uh, please don't put us behind the eight ball, um, especially because Yost is about to retire. Um, you know, they have this uh, – they things pick up, right? Like he has this recruiting cycle. Harmon comes through the program, 1940. They, he doesn't uh, he doesn't win the national championship, but they get close. It's a really good team. They only lost uh, to Min- they lose to Minnesota seven nothing and tied Ohio State. Um, and that never 1941 team, like he built the Seven Oaks Post. This is like the famous offensive line, one of the great offensive lines in college football history. Is the Seven Oaks Post, and seven including the tight ends, obviously, <laughs> but like they're just seven humongous guys and they all become doctors but like they were talked about in the newspapers like they're you know like the big thug uglies because like they're the biggest linemen oh my god 260 pound men what are you doing with people that large right like that was <laughs> that was that was that that team that, that 41 team uh so the team banquet for that uh, for that team, 1941, is the day that Chrysler is going to assume the athletic directorship, and Yost is going to step down. This is the patching of the torch, right? We've had the coach in place for a few years now. He's recruited his own players. Now his own guys are going to be on the team, um, and now he's going to be the athletic director. He's going to be running the show, and Fielding Yost, who is synonymous with Michigan, is stepping down. Um, on Saturday, December 6th, 1941. And it's like, okay, here we go. This new era is going to be amazing. And then the next morning. The next day. <laughs> the, next day. <laughs> the next day. So literally the day before Pearl Harbor <laughs> is where this goes down. So, yeah, um, now we're into kind of a different era, right? So, and, and this changed everything in Michigan. This changed everything in America overnight. 
uh, in 19, late, late 1941, you know, within days, half his team belongs. Remember, these are 18 to 22 year olds who's right. going, who's signing up for war. Yeah, they're going uh, and, Sure. Yeah. They, and, and they're, Mich- they're Michigan guys, right? Like these guys are the ones who consider themselves patriots. They're like first in line in Detroit to sign up for the, the Navy Air Corps or anything, right? We got pictures of all these players standing in line uh, with their Michigan sweaters on, like, here we go over there. Um, and so like literally half his team, I think uh, by January 1st was uh, signed up for the war in one way or another. And this happened across the country. Yeah, it happened to every team. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And every college team out there, except for Army and Navy, is like, what are we going to do? Army and Navy is like, we'll take that one. We'll take that one. Oh, sure. He looks good. Right. We'll have the best three players in in, in college football play for us at the same time. We'll put them in the same backfield. It'll be great. Um, (laughs) And and there's there's so many great players going to the war that they're creating all-star teams, right? So they they create Iowa Pre-Flight was a big program at the time. And then they uh, brought back Great Lakes Naval Station, which had been a program in World War I. And Great Lakes Naval Station, more terrifying for Michigan, calls Fritz Chrysler and says, hey, do you want to coach us? So we're in February 1942. And all of a sudden, instead of Michigan being like, okay, here we go. We're in the Chrysler era now. They are having like midnight vigils saying, are we going to lose our coach? And everyone kind of believed that he was going to go. Like, why would he not sign up? Why would he not take this opportunity um, you know, Paul Brown did it like a lot of big time coaches were jumping to these. Uh, you're going to have the best players and you're <laughs> going to be a, a national hero. Right. Like, why would you not do this? Um, and Michigan's got to come to him. And I think that he used that to get them to make some promises. So Chrysler's ready. He meets with Michigan and he says, you guys want to keep me. You guys want to keep your program going during the war. Here's what you need to do. You have to be an Army base. You have to get in on this business that Army and Navy and Great Lakes Naval Station and Iowa Preflight are are in. You have to get the guys who signed up to come here and train at Michigan and then they and and then play here while they're at it. In fact, you get to like count that as your calisthenics. So (laughs) like football is like considered a workout, right? (laughs) So so that's what they do. Um, They they jump at everything that they can. They keep him, obviously. Uh, and then they start jumping at an engineering training center is the first thing that goes up. They jump at a translation school to teach uh, teach men Japanese uh, and German, mostly Japanese at Michigan. And then the big one was a Navy training base. They jumped in. They got a Navy training base on campus. So because you have these bases, the guys who are enlisted could go right back to playing for Michigan. And, and now they're the training. Just the years of 42 to 43, 44, somewhere in there? Yes, exactly. It's 1942 yeah. to 1945 is where the, is when these are in existence, because they all they all pop up in 19 early 1942 and then they exist throughout the war. Uh, so uh, he gets in on it too. So he starts poaching other teams' players, most notably Wisconsin superstar. This is like the Ron Dane of the era. Or the, God, the, you're, you're old enough, you know Ron Dane if you listen to this podcast. Like a superstar running back of the era, Elroy uh, Elroy Hirsch, Crazy Legs Hirsch. He is like. He is Mr. Wisconsin, and now he's coming to play at Michigan. We also steal, like, like Ohio State's quarterback. Can you imagine Michigan today taking Ohio State's quarterback? We did that. <laughs> Howard Yurges, he comes over and plays from Ohio State. Um, we, had, uh, we had Pete Elliott already, so we, uh, we got his brother Bump to, to transfer over from Purdue. So, like, we, we were getting all these guys that Michigan, you know, Michigan's collecting, right? We're packing in the talent. Um, the other thing he does, uh, Chrysler is already very well respected around college football. He's already respected in the Big Ten, and uh, he's allow he's able to lobby the Big Ten to allow the scheduling of out of conference games against teams that like don't follow Big Ten rules. That was always a thing. You couldn't play Notre Dame, you couldn't go to a bowl game, you couldn't do a lot of these things because uh, Big Ten had rules that you can't play anybody who like gives scholarships out. Now he's like. We're Patriots. We have to play Iowa. Pre- we have to play Iowa pre-flight. Michigan says, or the Big Ten says, yes, we agree. You have to play Iowa pre-flight. It's only patriotic if you do. So what does he do? Schedules Notre Dame, of course. <laughs> 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 First thing he does, right? That's great. 
And these are huge, huge games. Notre Dame is Titanic at this period, right? And Michigan's Titanic. So it, no offense to Titanic people back then. Actually, new people on the Titanic. I shouldn't use that one. <laughs> but <laughs> um, So we bring back the Notre Dame-Michigan rivalry for a couple of years, 1942 and 1943. Biggest games of the year, pretty much, in those seasons, other than Army-Navy. Uh, and the first one was such a big deal. I pulled up the paper from Chicago, the Chicago Tribune. They have Rommel's defeat in Africa on the bottom half of the page and Michigan versus Notre Dame on the top of the page. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> so, like, oh, we got the Desert Fox. Also, you know, but the big news today is <laughs> Michigan defeats Notre Dame. Um, and that's like, and, and they're like, that's the, uh, I think that was um, Michigan's only loss in 1943 was Notre Dame. And, um, that whole Notre Dame invented the forward pass thing, not really true, just like every other thing that Notre Dame fans say. It's not, they're like <laughs> they're like the Scotland of college football. They have a lot of history, and none of it's true. Uh, what? Oh, how, how did my friend say it? They have a Notre Dame history is like Scottish history, full of ghosts and just as real. That's the quote. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so I mean, Notre Dame, it's like those are great games and they're, they're great for both teams. Um, and that's that 43 uh, game is when Notre Dame really kind of brings out the T formation and really uses passing uh, more than almost any team had in the past. Uh, and that's kind of where that story comes from, because everyone followed that game. Everyone wanted to know what Notre Dame was going to respond to Michigan after losing in 42. And then they bring out this passing attack in 43. And that's the first time I think the nation got to watch a passing game. Right. Uh, so those those two games are a huge deal in that period. But the biggest game in Michigan history uh, during this period, during the war, is the Army 1945 game. Army, as Doc Blanchard and like like they have their their collection of talents is just unreproachable. Like Alabama wishes that they could have. Imagine if you could take Alabama and then like take your favorite players from Georgia, then take your player favorite players from Ohio State, and then take your play, favorite players from Michigan, and then like okay that guy from Northwestern's pretty good. Like and just put them all in one. That was what Army was at this point, right? Like they had everybody. They had the whole country. Um, and you know beating the Nazis and then the Japanese. That's one thing, but like. We got to win some college football games too while we got this. So, I mean, so they were an incredible team, and they were just destroying everybody. And keep in mind, they had thirty-year-olds too, so they they literally could have Michael Vick on that team, right? They could they could just right. they, they could reach way back and grab uh, older players. Um, and so and they have the top three Heisman contenders on that team, and they're wrecking everybody. And Michigan has them scheduled at Yankee Stadium, surrounded by, like, you know, they're supposed to go and just be the sacrificial lamb so Army can go and, like, beat Michigan and then beat the Nazis. And Chrysler's on the rules committee. And he kind of helped them tweak the substitution rules a little bit. And, you know, however you want to say this, because, like, they knew what he was doing, but it was almost kind of like a, a side thing that technically with the rule changes he created, you could have – one whole team playing defense and one whole team playing offense, and they wouldn't even have to talk to each other. Like it, it was possible to do, and like, except for on turnovers or something like that. Like there were there were situations where that wouldn't work, but the idea of having substitution patterns like that, of having platoons, uh, would never have been tried because these rule tweaks were kind of what needed to happen, and would not have happened unless the guy on the rules committee put them in there specifically knowing he was going to be playing army in 1945 at Yankee stadium. <laughs> so that's Chrysler. And then that's the game. That's the first time that anyone really sees it's been tried before, obviously, and people try to get around it, but you need the rule change before it could happen. So it's not like he invented it. It's more kind of like he slipped in. He tried it for, he got it in there. He figured out how to make it legal. And then, implemented it and surprised everybody with it. And he played two platoons against Army, and they kept it close. Um, it was 7-7 most of the game. Army finally pulled ahead. I mean, you've seen a million blowouts that go that way, right? Where, like, the, the team that's supposed to destroy Indiana is in it for a long time, and then, you know, then they pull away and win 28-7. That kind of game is what it was. But no one else didn't even put a scare into them. And everyone saw it, right? This game was at Yankee Stadium. This is 1945. This is top news of the day. And that was like a 
a, a, a seminal moment for Chrysler because now everyone sees that he's the best football coach in America. Um, and you're coming to the end of the war. So Michigan is not only, you know, not only they have all this collection of players that they've gotten from the war, but they're going to get back everybody who actually went and fought the war. And they had some amazing players and they recruited. Remember, I go back to 1942. Remember, I talked about all those guys they recruited after Tom Harmon. Those guys, a lot of them didn't even get to show up. They, they came and then they went to the war. Right, they still right. had all their eligibility, and now they're showing up. Like Bob Chapwis is like the, the next Tom Harmon. You know, he had to wait. In the, in that, but in the interim, what had he done? He'd gone and fought the war. Now he's even a, a, now even a harder ASS. <laughs> like this guy, <laughs> now, that didn't make him worse at football, right? <laughs> so stronger and tougher. Yeah. Right, and so now the so it takes about a year for this all for everyone to get back and be discharged and whatnot, uh, and they had to work out how they're gonna how rosters are gonna work because everyone had like gotten filled the roster with sixteen year olds because those are the only players that went uh, uh, that would get drafted, right? So they pack everybody in, and Michigan's just like overflowing with stars, and so they keep the system, they keep the platoon system mostly. A couple guys played both ways, but for the most part. Um, like everyone, but, uh, but Bob Chapwis and Jack Weisenberger, I think on this, uh, on the 47 team played, uh, one side or the other, and that allowed them to focus more on what they were doing. And, uh, and, and just, you know, Hey, look, I'm a defender. I can spend all my practice time on defense now and do that. And they're just bursting with talent so they can use guys where they're best, uh, best served. Um, and they just had these amazing players. Bump Elliott, Howard Yurgis, the guy we got from Ohio State, Jack Weisenberger, the, the spinning fullback, who was actually one of those 16-year-old kids they'd gotten. Uh, center Dan Dworsky, uh, one of the best tacklers of his time. Center back then was middle linebacker. Um, he was like one of the best middle linebackers of his time. I got to speak to – he passed away recently, but I got to speak with him. Um, oh. And, you know, the, the, the award – they use for linebackers today. He and that guy <laughs> were the uh, were like the two great linebackers, and it was like 50-50. So yeah, Chuck Begnerick, the Begnerick Award, right? So that's the like it was it was it was one or the other who's uh, who's going to be like the the it was going to be Dan Dworsky or whatever. Dworsky actually uh, goes on to design Chrysler Arena, where Michigan plays basketball, and in Chrysler Arena is a bust of Fritz Chrysler. Um, that Dworsky also made very, you know, it was, it, I, I'm using him as an example because these are the kind of players that Michigan had. They were not just some of the best players in America at the time, but also uh, amazing individuals who have excelled in their fields beyond what you could possibly imagine a football player or anybody graduating. Like he would, if he hadn't been played football, he still would have been like one of the most famous graduates of his class. Um, also de uh, designed uh, Los Angeles International and a few other airports. Um, and he made the bust of Chrysler that you see inside Chrysler, Chrysler Arena. Uh, so he's the center on that team. <laughs> Theo Koseski is another uh, fantastic individual. He's the right halfback. Uh, they just, I'm just packed with talent. So those, th that team, and I, I kind of want to um, – to just paint that picture of all those players here at the same time and playing on different uh, platoons for the first time because this is where the Mad Magicians come from. If you've heard that name before, that speaks to the 1947 and 1948 National Championship teams. Both those teams went undefeated. Both those teams never really came close to losing a game, and they were the first teams – nationally known. Other teams had picked up on it, obviously, but those first two like major platoon teams. Um, and one of the things that platooning did for offense is you could practice a lot goofier plays. So Chrysler gets the credit, but I think, just going back, and like I've spoken to a lot of his former players. We talked to a lot of these guys before they passed away. Um, tried to get them down, right, on get, get them on tape before we lost them. And because a lot of them played for Oosterbahn, so I think that maybe they were biased towards Oosterbahn a little bit, so I don't trust it entirely. But most of them said the same thing, that Oosterbahn was kind of more responsible for that Mad Magician's offense than Chrysler himself. Chrysler, 
uh, if you want to imagine who he was, what he like looked like to these guys, um, Jack Weisenberger, uh, the the fullback, which was kind of like the quarterback in their system, um, he described him as kind of like George Washington at Valley Forge. Uh, Leo Krasewski, we talked to him. He's a Chrysler, was like that. But, like, once in a while, he'd just make a smart quip, and you were so surprised you, like, forgot to laugh. Like, it was a good joke. He just <laughs> like, what? what? <laughs> it's like, oh, this is coming from you. Um, and, 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 and Dworsky said that, like, he, he remembers, like, a Douglas MacArthur figure. Uh, all of them mentioned the nickname they had for him, which was The Lord. The Lord. So that's who – the Lord. So that's who Chrysler was to them at the end of his, you know, he's coming to the very end of his college coaching career, but he has a much, not nearly done with him as a, as a um, person, as an administrator, right? He's the athletic director for another 20 years. Uh, but in the Mad Magicians era, when Michigan is just destroying everybody, they go to the Rose Bowl, uh, which is a big deal. Michigan, you know, the Big Ten allowing their teams to go back to the Rose Bowl. Like, this is a huge deal for them. And for, it was amazing that they got to do it because every one of them said that that trip out there was, like, the best thing that ever happened to them. They took the band out there. They stopped in Arizona. Uh, and I think, like, the guy who started Arizona State uh, or one of the main donors of the original of Arizona State originally was a Michigan alum who hosted all these guys. He had the whole band. And huh. his uh, – at his place in uh, outside of Phoenix, probably near Scottsdale, I think is where it was. We looked it up one time where it was, uh, but it was a uh, but like he he kind of like fetted them and it's like hey, no, he's talking to Michigan graduates, so it's a pretty decent group of people to be talking to in 1948, January first, 1948. He's like hey, when you guys graduate, why don't you come out here and uh, and you know we'll I'll set you up with jobs and whatnot, and if you want to teach, like maybe you can teach here. So there's like a connection. From that trip, just from Michigan going to the Rose Bowl and stopping for a while and the band stopping in Arizona and spending a few days there, there's like a connection between Michigan and Arizona State University. I don't think anyone knows. Like Michigan fans and Arizona State fans only know each other, right? But like there's a there is a strong connection from the origins of Arizona State with Michigan fans coming out there and specifically the Michigan band because a lot of them came back and chose to live in Phoenix uh, afterwards. So that's a another moment of transformation, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, what were the years like after Coach Chrysler? So, so he passes it on to Benny Oosterbahn. Mm-hmm. and Oosterbahn was the was a star himself, right? He was the greatest athlete at Michigan. He starred in everything. He was the best basketball player that we'd ever had to that point, as well as being the star end, which is like wide receiver, right? Uh, and he and Several more things besides. He was just a he had he had more letters uh, in track and whatnot than he probably ever wrote in his college career. So the the guy was uh, the obvious choice. Also because Oosterbahn was gonna he you know he was the right hand man of Chrysler and Chrysler was still gonna be around, but Oosterbahn was gonna run things the way that Chrysler wanted him to. This is kind of important because. Um, College football now is changing. We're now in the post-war world. And Michigan was set up, 1947, 1948, they're the biggest team in college football. They are the champions. They are unassailable. They are on the cutting edge. They've got these cool helmets that everyone's recognizing. And television is just starting. I mean, we're just at the very beginning. 1950, there's the snowball. That's the... um, that's that famous uh, blizzard comes through. Uh, Ohio State didn't really have to play. They could have canceled the game and won the Big Ten. They choose to play, figuring, ah, whatever, you know, Illinois is going to take business care of business against Northwestern. Midway through the game, they hear Northwestern upset Illinois. Michigans are like, oh, holy, oh, my God, we can go to the Rose Bowl. And we, like, sneak back to the Rose Bowl that year. Um, Ohio State fans are so mad about this. Like, you could have canceled the game. What are you doing? The reason he didn't cancel the game. The reason they didn't is Fritz Chrysler walks into the room and he's just got such a presence because, I mean, they got a pretty young AD at Ohio State at the time. And Wes Fessler is their coach and he's not like the most forceful guy. The the god in the room is Fritz Chrysler. And he's the one who like very quietly, very suggestive, like suggests they play the game because, you know, okay, if you want to cancel, you can cancel. That's all right. You can cancel Michigan, Ohio State. We understand. You're not our biggest rival anyway. <laughs> right? He's not. I'm not putting words in his mouth. But everyone there, 
says that they would not have played the game had not Chrysler said what he said and been what he'd been. So Michigan and Ohio State play this ridiculous game of college football. Every The more you look at it, the more ridiculous. The, the number of punts in this game alone tells you how stupid a game of football this was. But Michigan ends up winning it. Michigan ends up going to the Rose Bowl. Ohio State fans are so mad, they burn their coach, Wes Fessler, in effigy. Right? Like they, they, <laughs> and Ohio State goes, okay, you're fine. Fessler kind of retires, but I think that he was kind of pushed out after that. Uh, and they're like, okay, you know, what are they going to do? It can't be Wes Fessler because we just count out. We need to go the exact opposite of Wes Fessler. And that's why they hire uh, Miami, Ohio's coach, Woodrow Hayes, because they need to be because they lost that game. That's the only because Ohio State fans were Ohio State's administration was never going to go for a guy that like these guys were popping up all over college football all of a sudden after the war. They're the drill sergeants, right? This is like a new way of doing things. So Yost, who kind of shaped a lot of the way that coaching was, I hate going back to Yost and using him as the guy, but he was, you know, he was a big, big, important guy. And, and other guys of his generation, the way they coached was building you up. Like, okay, you can do that better. Oh, no, no, you're, you're fine. They trusted their guys. They, they, they were much more Pete Carroll style uh, coaches, right? They, they, they made you feel good. Well, after the war, everyone starts believing in this other version of a coach, the, you know, the, the drill sergeants. And, you know, Woody Hayes is, is one. I mean, the, the, the fellow with a ridiculous hat at Alabama, he's another one. So, <laughs> you know, the, so like the, and, and you're getting into this era now. The Bear Bryants are replacing this old school style of coach who's kind of a quasi college professor, right? Like you're not your buddy necessarily, but like an upstanding citizen, a, a person who, uh, I don't know, the, what Chrysler was, it was kind of going away and it's being replaced slowly. And Oosterbahn is trying to model himself because Chrysler's the guy that he literally calls the Lord, right? So Oosterbahn is modeling himself after this old style coach when these drill sergeants are taking over and you start to see it in Michigan. Now they fix the rules. So like everyone, they have to go back to playing both ways and stuff. Um, but Michigan kind of goes from being the team in 1948, probably in the best position of any team in the country to dominate the fifties and sixties. They are all over televisions about to pop, right? Like all they had to do was be the best for a few more years and, start recruiting uh, the way that other schools were. Michigan State is there. They're going all over the country recruiting. And other northern teams have started discovering that in the south, they don't let their best players play, right? If you have your skin's black, you don't get to play. And Ohio State, they were uh, they actually had gone back. They, they had a couple of black players, and then they'd gone back to all white until Woody Hayes. Woody Hayes says no. I'm going to the South, man. I'm going to get some of these guys. And Michigan State, too. Michigan State's like, no, I'm going to have a tight end named Bubba, right? Like, this is these, – these schools are taking advantage of the racism in the South to say, like, we're going to just get better. And they do. Michigan State is one of the biggest programs in the country in the 1950s and 60s. Ohio State becomes one of the biggest programs in the country in the 50s and 60s. Notre Dame becomes one of the biggest programs in the country in the 50s and 60s. Everyone knows those schools at that period because they are going out and recruiting. And then they are drill sergeanting themselves down to just a few guys who came there, who are the best players in the country, who are fantastic athletes. And then, you know, we have plenty of players, so if you don't want to stick around, then, then you play. So they, those three schools are, are huge, and they're all of Michigan's rivals. They're like, those, those are the guys that we hate the most. And here they are just whipping our butts every year. So Michigan is kind of falling behind, and Chrysler is a big reason why. Um, I, 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 I don't want to make him out to be a bad guy. He, was, he certainly wasn't. But he was so good at playing the game that existed in the 1940s that I think that he was not as good at playing the game in the 50s. Now, he was still good at creating marquee matchups. So Michigan was still a big name. But Michigan was falling behind on talent because he wasn't doing these things. And he also, and I have to say this, he upheld the, quote, gentleman's agreement to only recruit one black player per, per team. And 
you know, not only was this racist, it also held back his team. You're not getting the best players. You're leaving the best players on the table for somebody else to get. So this was a problem for Michigan from a competitive standpoint. And also, I don't know if you know much about Ann Arbor, but we're super liberal up there and super <laughs> they were super liberal there in the 50s and that wasn't flying well there either and to like have this kind of like counter um I, the, it, it didn't feel like michigan necessarily to everybody so a lot of the things come back and people are questioning Oosterbahn and people are saying how come you don't just go and recruit like everyone else does how come you don't offer scholarships like everyone else does and Oosterbahn finally says I can't handle this. If I can't coach like Chrysler, I'm not going to coach. And Oosterbahn hangs it up after just a decade and passes it on to Bump Elliott. Now, you, a lot of times you have like this, you know, among coaches, you have like the good cop, bad cop, right? Like the, the head coach is the jerk and the, the guy that you fear. But then you got your assistant coach who you love and he's going to be nice to you, right? And that worked really well. Chrysler was the guy that you feared, and Oosterbahn was the guy you loved. And then Oosterbahn tried to be the guy you feared, and Bump was the guy you loved. But they kind of loved both of them. Well, now it's just the guy you loved, and the guy you loved, everyone was just – everyone's so lovey-dovey. And it worked once. It worked in 64. They had a great team in one year. Uh, but that was – also, when they hired like an assistant coach who was a real jerk, so like the I, I have to give credit to like the the Woody Hayes style of coaching in the 1950s and 60s because it obviously worked, and the Michigan style really wasn't. The other thing that Chrysler he kind of had this depression era mindset. Remember, this is a guy who you know came up. Uh, he started playing in the 1910s and. Uh, he was in Chicago during the 1920s, and he was he was in Minnesota, and then he was in Ann Arbor, and he was in Princeton. He had seen the depression from a lot of different angles, and that, I think, shaped him and the way that he spent as an athletic director, I believe, was really shaped by like these experiences that he had. Now, that worked fine in the 40s when everybody's on the GI Bill. Afterwards... There's not as much money. Everyone, there's money out there. You can get money easily, but he's not grabbing at those things, and he's not using it to upgrade the facilities. So by the time that he retires at Michigan in 68, there is like a massive need for money. He did – I got to give him credit. He upgraded Michigan Stadium. He expanded Michigan Stadium. He actually made Michigan Stadium 100,000 seats. It was the first stadium to ever get up to 100,000 seats. He didn't make it 100,000, though. He made 100,001. And Michigan fans, to this day, are wondering, who's the one? What's the one? Where's the one, right? Where's, the one, where's that one, one seat? And we still do this. When, when we upgrade recently, it was like, we're going to make it 113,001. Well, who's the one? I bet you, knowing everything you know about Fritz Chrysler, the way that he coached, the way he – messed around with the rules the way that he like could could work so well in a system where like the schools were in charge and like he could get there and like change the rules to to benefit him he was so good at that but like was so far behind as everyone else built up as the the industry itself grew and he got left behind it's Amos Alonzo Stag I bet you it's Stag (laughs) that's great I gotta give you credit the way you paint your words you can see almost like a 40-year wheel of history of college football come alive just amazing that's why i love this stuff man (laughs) right up against the edge of time but willing to do a quick lightning round of a few fun questions that i usually ask my guests very happy to okay (laughs) quick here if you could have been on the sidelines reporting for one game in the history of college football what game would it have been uh, I know we were just talking about it, but I swear I usually don't talk about Chrysler, and this is still my answer. It's the 1948 Rose Bowl. <laughs> Who's your favorite player in the history of college football? Uh, growing up, it was Desmond Howard. Kind of got replaced by Denard Robinson when he came along. Beautiful. <laughs> He's, I mean, he, this guy, we were talking to him uh, for the 2011 podcast, the one about the 2011 team. And I asked him, like, hey, what, what the heck happened to you in the first three quarters against Notre Dame? He's like, I was so hyped up, man. I was so excited. That's why I couldn't play. I was so excited. I'm like, that sealed it, man. That's, that's my favorite. That's my guy. That's your guy. <laughs> What's your most memorable play in college football history? Oh, my God. There's, the problem is 
I, I unfortunately remember the horrible things that happened to my team. <laughs> I'm just like, like anything that any Michigan State fan immediately thinks of when they think of like what's going to make a Michigan fan feel terrible. That play, that plays in my head, <laughs> playing right now. I swear to God, Ohio State fans, you're don't feel left out, okay? Ohio State fans, you're wondering what's in your head right now. Yes, very much. It's Curtis Samuel running into the end zone after the after the the spot. Like I, all of those, all of those are in my head. But I did want to bring up one. You asked, you gave me this question ahead of time, and that it it reminded me of this one play that I play in my head all, all the time, and I don't know why this is so. This one matters to me so much, but it's it's a game against Michigan State a few years ago, uh, where it was just pouring rain, and it's one of those games against Michigan State that we always get into, where like we're so much the better team, and everyone can see it, but like there's a fumble here, or like a guy who's averaging 30 yards a punt spears a wild snap out of the air, like he's OBJ, then runs it and boots it 60 yards. Like this is <laughs> one of those games, and then all of a sudden, from where we're, where our seats are, the sun peeks right out and shines right down on the stadium just as Shea Patterson launches a ball over, uh, down the sideline. And, like, he's overthrown so many targets already in this game and this season, and, like, that's the guy he is. And, like, you look down there, and there's Donovan Peoples-Jones running with a cornerback who's literally named right. Person. Like, you could not make it any more perfect. Person falls down. <laughs> and just as, like, just at the edge of the stadium shadow, like, and, like, Peoples-Jones bursts into the sunlight and, like, yeah, uh, that that moment to me, because I spent so much time at this point now writing about college football and doing this as a living, um, that was like a moment when like the joy flooded back in and like I remembered being such a college football fan. And of course, he goes down in the end zone and makes the little uh, he 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 stands like the Paul Bunyan trophy afterwards. So we're up to you, whatever. It's that 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 moment's the good moment. Great answer. Biggest <laughs> upset in college football history. Uh, pass. <laughs> <laughs> For reasons we won't. Don't, don't ask speech. Michigan fans this question, sir. <laughs> I know, I hesitate. We know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever do you mean? <laughs> we, call it, we call it the horror, okay? That's, that's, that's all you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> Greatest team in college football history. I'll leave, it, I'll leave it with that one. Last one. Greatest team in college football history? Yes, sir. Uh, pure dominance, 1901 Michigan, but of the ones that I've seen, uh, probably 2001 Miami. Thank you, Mr. Seth Fisher. You've been a phenomenal guest, articulate, a wealth of knowledge. It's like listening to a library speak and you just paint a picture of history that comes alive. You can follow Seth Fisher on Twitter at M-I-S-O-P-O-G-O-N. That's at M-I-S-O-P-O-G-O-N. Can you pronounce that word for us one last time, Mr. Fisher? <laughs> no one knows how to pronounce it. I've been saying misophagon, but it All means right. beard hater. It's a it's an Emperor Julian history of reference. In, <laughs> in case in case I haven't proved my dorkiness enough on this podcast. <laughs> Thank you for listening to History of College Football. I am Jay Abramson. Join us every Tuesday and Saturday for a new episode.